And that's such an important lesson that especially artists need to learn, right. which is, which is be adaptable, leave yourself open, understand that your ultimate goal is to be a storyteller. Right. And that might take many different forms. As long as the story, as long as you get to tell the story you want to tell, be open. Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about The Director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video. All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode nine of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. Today, our guest is Keith Powell, and our episode title is Keith Powell on the moment Oprah saved his job. And that is a very interesting conversation point that we get to uh, in the middle of our interview. Uh, you are probably more familiar with Keith as a as an actor. Uh, he played Twofer on 30 Rock. But over the course of our talk, you'll come to find that he is another one of those complete storytellers who writes, directs, acts across theater, film and television and more. Keith and I met a few years back at a roundtable session of directors that had gone through the various directing programs toward episodic television directing. Uh, probably turned into a bit of a gripe session. And uh, afterward, we were like, hey man, let's let's grab, grab a drink, grab a burger, chop it up. And since then, he's become a friend, uh, a confidant, very uh, good person to have in your corner as a creative and also um, just somebody who can cook the brother can cook very very well uh dinners at the powells are uh are legendary so uh without any further ado check out episode nine and i will see you on the other side roll sound speed the interview take one so tell me about greg monroe uh uh so I'm assuming that you're you're uh, referring to uh, Law and Order when I like when I first began. Um, uh, you know, I like Greg Monroe. I, that was that was my very first top job in television. It was weird because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> and I um, had to be on set with Vincent D'Onofrio all the time, who was terrifying. Um, how, how so? Well, he demanded a lot out of his guest stars, and um, we were mostly directed by him. <laughs> there you go. Uh, 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 and, you know, I'm like 22, 23. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And then, um, uh, but the thing that I that I really love about this, because I, I did two Law & Orders, you know, um, in my first couple of years in television, that was my, those were my first two jobs. It was law and order criminal intent 
and Law and Order, the regular version. <laughs> I love how Law and Order regular like now needs a new regular. It, it, it's like Law and Order classic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Law, Law and Order OG was <laughs> um, um, was directed. Both episodes were directed by people who had profound impacts on my career. They were. It was the Criminal Intent was directed by Don Scardino who later was the producing director on 30 Rock. So I worked with Don Scardino, you know, for all seven years of 30 Rock. Um, and he was a major influence on, on my crafting as a professional. Um, and then the second Law & Order that I did, the OG version, was directed by Paris Barclay, who eventually became the DGA president. And then um, he's currently my mentor. Uh, through the DGA. So um, um, both of these shows was kind of like the like this proving ground in New York City, you know? Right, right. Yeah, if you haven't yeah. done one, you're, you, you're not an actor. And, mm -hmm. you know, Dorian Missick mentioned that, Rob McElhenney mentioned that uh, yep. in their interviews on the podcast. So you know it's why? Just as an actor, um, Actually, also as a storyteller, as a, as a director as well, there's so much exposition in Law & Order that you have to sell and make it not sound like exposition that it really helps you as a storyteller if you know how to move it forward without feeling stale or stagnant. Right. And I think that that's why Law & Order proves <laughs> such a proving ground for everybody. Right. It's kind of like, I wonder if uh, it's kind of similar to Robert Altman doing 100 episodes of Gunsmoke, you yeah. know, to like yeah. get that to work that muscle and then say, you know, you don't have to record audio like this. You know, right. people can overlap. And right. it, that's the beauty of like um, mastering the, the craft. But that's how we and that's how, you know, but that's what what is it? The uh, the. Um, 10,000 hours. I mean, you know, yeah. that that's that's true. You, you gotta you gotta have a um a plate you need an, an arena where you can fail over and over and over and over and over again in order for you to flourish. Right. Right, right, right. So you yeah. so you grew up uh tell me and just to let folks know, we, we started recording this and I, well, we started talking and I had failed to record this. So now <laughs> I, I, I just feel horrible that I'm retreading four or five questions with this brother. But uh, I love talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me about your, uh, we were talking about how you grew up and uh, uh, let's just go back to that because I think right. maybe, maybe sure. the people should hear it. I heard it, but they might not. Uh, so I was born in Philadelphia and my mother is young. Um, and so she, my mother was only 20 years older than me. So she was still like learning about herself when she had to, when she had a kid. And so she followed a, a, a boyfriend or, or moved with a boyfriend to California. So we moved when I was like two or three years old to Monterey, California, Central California. And, um, and we lived there from uh, when I was like three years old to I was 11. And in that time, the rest of my family moved uh, to California to be with us. And my family consists of my mother, 
my grandmother, those were my parents, and my two aunts who were very close in age, my grandmother's two youngest children, um, they were five and seven years older than me. So they were like my sisters. And so it was, you know, the three of us um, and then my my parents um, in the house. And we uh, lived in California until the early 90s. And, and then we moved. We wanted to be closer to family on the East Coast. So we moved back to um, the East Coast and we moved to Delaware. And I was in Delaware from, you know, 11 to high school. And then from high school, I went to NYU. And then after after NYU, did you immediately? Uh, well, actually, no. Let's let's come back to that later. Let's later sure. Um, so you were mentioning, or we were we were talking about like the the byproduct of growing up around strong black women and, and yeah. black women, and how that kind of affects your creativity. Like, what what did that? How did that inform your art? And well, your voice? So, well, that's the thing. Like, like I I grew up with. Um, four women in my house and all of them wanted to always remind me that they were strong black women. So if that was in my, that was like drilled into my head from day one. And so I, I, I believe that it's kind of helped me as a storyteller um, be a little bit more sensitive uh, in, in my storytelling, um, uh, understanding nuances uh, that, that, you know, growing up in a house with, with testosterone, what might not have noticed. <laughs> right. um, uh, and so, so I feel like I've, I kind of, I, I know how to tell the story of, I mean, I, the, the person who can tell the story of a strong black woman, the best is a strong black woman, right. but, but I feel like I'm the closest to it after that, you know? And, and, but I think my, my family is, uh, was really, really passionate about education and history and, and about black history, because I don't, I think that black people don't get, um, enough of their history. A lot of our history was taken from us. And, um, so history was so very important to our family. And that's how I became a storyteller because I wanted to talk about black history. Um, our family, my family, my great grand, my, my great grandfather, my, my grandmother's father was the first black principal of Delaware. He got his master's degree at Columbia and education became a major component in his life because his grandfather was a man named Harmon Unthank, who, um, That's he a great was, name. Harmon Unthank. The Unthanks are is the is the family is my is my grandmother's family. The Unthanks. I don't thank you. I unthank you. Right. And <laughs> um, and the Unthanks um, were given reparations. They were given forty acres. Actually, they were given more than forty acres. Um, Where were uh, they? What state? North Carolina. North Carolina. Okay. Yeah, and um, and it later. Um, it later became a big city that I now can't remember <laughs> in North Carolina. Um, and um, Harmon Unthank became a major civil rights leader. And uh, he, his children uh, became educated uh, and, and um, 
Uh, one of his children is, is a, was a prominent doctor. One of his children was a prominent architect in Portland, Oregon. There's a park named after the Unthanks right. because of that. And so, so history, holding on to that kind of history was so important to us that I had no choice but to kind of be a storyteller and, and tell mm. stories. You know? Right. It's so interesting. It, this is like a, this is where you get into like the big debate about art and commerce and, and voice because like what you're talking about is the importance of having an image or a symbol to try and replicate, right? Yeah. And when you think about some of the images that are dumped onto our community, it's yes. kind of it's kind of no surprise that you have a certain um, kind of I'll even call it you know psychosis that kind of generates and swirls around within the community yep. of what is accomplishment and what's my responsibility and I am not a role model. And it's like, well, how, how right. where are you going to get with that? If right. we just ab absolve ourselves from, um, from that responsibility. It's frustrating in, in that way. And because I, I feel like, um, so much has been put onto the black community just because of the simple act of our history being taken from us. Um, uh, that uh, uh, not only are, is our history been taken from us, we've been forced into um, roles and boxes in society that don't allow us to grow or change um, or advance. And we, and it's our individual fighting spirit that pushes through that, but that takes a toll. That push right. takes a toll. And so, um, and so we, we have a great responsibility. You know, you, we have to work twice as hard for half as much. And it's a great responsibility. It's a great burden. Um, but it's something that kind of has always driven me. And mm -hmm. I, 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 I don't know, for, for some reason, and, and my wife is like this as well, I, I think it's so important for, for, for our race to be educated and to have a particular foundation of education so that we can even begin to compete. Right. I feel like sports is, is it's like my go-to analogy because it really represents the easiest way to, to look at life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, I think, I feel like education is synonymous with like understanding what the offense of the other team is trying to do to your defense. You know right. what I mean? Right. And if and if you don't understand a given go scenario in basketball, mm -hmm. be prepared to lose every fucking game. You know what exactly. I mean? Like if you can't understand like that person needs to be given space because they're faster than you, but that one you can get up in their face because they're going to shoot and that's all they can do. Like that's that's what the education is, learning how to maneuver and and I, 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 some of these words sound negative, but I don't mean them negatively. Exploit, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, like, I see. Be, be, yeah. Because like, ex like I feel like even when I was raising money for my film, like part of like this superpower to raise $600,000 was like, they don't think I can do it. They don't think you can do it. They don't think I can do it. 
And so I'm here in these spaces and I'm doing what I'm doing. And y'all are probably like not even recognizing what's happening in front of your face. Well, that's the thing where, where, where and I think that this is so important for artists in general, not just black artists, but obviously, especially black artists, figuring out a way to do it on your own and uh, not relying on other people to give you the hand up or, or to tell you that it's okay to do it. Figuring out how to kind of build your life and your career as an artist by yourself. Because, and this is something that I always preach to, um, I, have, I get mentees from NYU every, every year and I always um, preach um, to my mentees um, you have to figure out a way how to work in a business that needs you, but does not want you. <laughs> yeah. And you need to remember that they need you. And this is, but this is the work. This is the life work. Right. You know? Right. Well, so let, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And this was, uh, I look at every interview and I kind of say, what's the what's the kind of theme of this interview right? right um and i feel like this is a conversation about being prolific and being mm. the multi-hyphenate on your own terms and so obviously folks are going to know you as an actor for some right mm -hmm. um but you have directed theater directed television you're writing. I don't know mm -hmm. what I can mention or not, so I'll just say you're writing. <laughs> uh, I, I can I, I know, can go through all that, but yeah. <laughs> but so, like, let let let's talk about first. I want to get into the first question is is what do you see yourself as first and foremost, and then let's get into the journey from uh, you know from. Uh, Greg Monroe to today. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I see myself as a storyteller. And I, I sit down, you know, because, because I'm transitioning more into directing for television. Mm. I have a lot of meetings with, you know, the studio heads and, and, and our, you know, heads of current and things like that. Um, and they always are a little confused as to what I am because I do so many things. I'm in five unions. I do. <laughs> uh, I've been hired. Um, and, and, you know, for a time, my health insurance would jump from union to union to union per year based upon what I did the previous year. And what right. I did the previous year was required the use of a different union. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Um, um, but you and know, so by that, you mean you're hopping around from writer's guild to director's guild to screen yeah. actors guild to, yeah. are you, are you and, like a grip as so, well or a teamster? No, I'm not a teamster. <laughs> I'm not a teamster. <laughs> but theater guilds, theater, like, you know, there's a, there's a director's guild for the, for the, for the theater and there's a director's guild for, uh, there's an actor's guild for actors, right. actors equity. And so, so those are my unions. And, um, and I, the, the, the answer that I always give is I'm a storyteller and I, I'm not a director. I'm not an actor. I'm not a writer. I'm a storyteller. And there are stories that require me mm -hmm. to direct it. 
There are stories that require me to write it. And there are stories that require me to be the vessel through which actors and directors um, need to be and that's uh, need to tell the story and 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 that's me as an actor. And it's not, it's never about um, what I can get a job in. It's never about what, um, what's, what drives me today. It's always about what story am I telling? And am I telling this story in the best way using whatever particular skill that I have to help tell this story? So I don't know. I mean, you know, I, what I like and, and, and I, I've always, my entire career has always been following the story and obviously following job opportunities because right, that's you, important. You, you, you got to get paid. You got to get and, paid. And, and so did that drive you from, because you created a, uh, a theater, correct, in Delaware. And then you go to NYU um, for, well, yeah. I went to NYU for directing, uh, theater directing. I got my degree in theater directing. Mm -hmm. um, but while I was at NYU, I, I um, uh, started getting hired as an actor in commercials. And so when I graduated from NYU, I, I, I never was, I was never not able to get a job outside of acting. Thank God, knock on wood. Right. And, and, um, I, my grandmother, who was one of my parents, um, got cancer. And so I left New York City. I was actually doing a play in DC, but I moved back to New York City to move out of New York City to go to Delaware to take care of her in the last year, two years of her life. And um, while I was there, I was bored and I was drinking a lot. And, and I, um, I, I, uh, uh, on a night that I was bored and drinking, I, um, mm -hmm. saw that in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, there was an, there was a brand new theater that was sitting empty. And so I scheduled a meeting with the artistic direct, uh, the, the executive director of the, of, um, the building. Um, it was a nonprofit, um, and said, what the hell are you doing in that theater? And he's like, uh, we just built it. We don't know yet. And I said, well, I'd like to put, make a, I'd like to put a theater company in there. And I was, you know, 24 years old. So I was, um, I thought I could do anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for the time that I was taking care of my grandmother, she passed away during this time, but it, you know, for about a year, they gave me an office in that building for free. And um, I spent that year raising a couple hundred thousand dollars mm. um, to do a first season. And I, I, we did, a, we did a, a one play in that first season. And it was, um, I didn't direct it, I just produced it. Um, and it was um, a play starring um, the actress Lynn Redgrave. Um, she won Oscars and shit and Tonys and she's a, she was a huge, huge star, um, a huge theater star who came and did my play when I was 24. And that really was my graduate school. I learned so much for, from Lynn. 
Um, there wasn't a day that went by that she didn't call me a fucking genius and a fucking idiot often in the same sentence. <laughs> uh, don't you and, love when they build you up and, and, and cut you down? You down. <laughs> <laughs> but Lynn Redgrave was my um, education. She came from a very prestigious um, acting family, the Redgraves. I mean, like they were, and and watching her work was was every bit of graduate school that I could ever have hoped for. How so? Um, because what Lynn taught me and what has stayed with me as an artist is that, first of all, actors are not interpretive artists, they're creative artists. Mm. And, and you're always putting yourself into your art. It's never, it, you're, it's never about doing what other people have asked you to do or doing what other people have required you to do or, or, or saying they require you to do. It's answering whatever little voice inside of you that, can, that is congruent with the work. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a fucking powerful lesson to learn at 24. Right, do you right. Know? Um, and is what Lynn, how Lynn embodied her entire artistic life. Every role that Lynn has ever played is a little bit of Lynn. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's her finding her way into it. And, and that's what started guiding me as a storyteller. And so when you, you graduate NYU, did you, you were doing commercials while at NYU? And so, uh, yeah. and so, uh, what kind of was it? Let me transition into uh, uh, television, or like, how did how did that it even was, happen for you? It was always like, for better or worse, my career has always kind of found me. I never found my career, um, and and the only way that I would find the only way that I can answer that I would find my career. Um, that I was an active participant in it is an active participant in discovery of myself as an artist. So it was always learning and growing and changing as an artist, and then an opportunity would show itself. And so, uh, right? And and so um, it was. I did a Wendy's commercial because I did a. A, a fucking play at NYU that somebody found me in where I really worked my ass off on that play. And somebody found, a manager found me in that play and said, you know, uh, can I put you in commercials? I went and auditioned for maybe 300 commercials before I booked my first Wendy's commercial, but I booked it right as I was graduating NYU. And, um, um, then Wendy's commercial allowed me to shoot a Starburst commercial, which allowed me to, um, have enough money to not have a day job, um, mm -hmm. which allowed me to how, how much, how much does a commercial, like a national commercial like that make somebody? In the early 2000s, I think that like, I was a spokesperson for Starburst. So I think I made like a hundred grand off of that mm. in the early two thousands. Just off a thirty second spot, or or like a it was campaign. a number of spots. It was a campaign. Yeah. It was like yeah. commercials. It was it was uh, it was commercials. It was radio spots. Wow. Um, and so I, and you know it, I, I and I you know I didn't 
I was a kid and, and um, I had just graduated from school. I was still doing theater. I was doing theater plays, but it allowed, it freed up my days to audition mm -hmm. for things. And, um, and then my grandmother got sick and I packed up from New York City and moved back to Delaware. And in Delaware, I started learning how to um, kind of do things for myself and on my own. Right. Um, and then I was reborn in Delaware um, uh, doing Contemporary Stage, which was the name of the theater company that I ran. Um, and that led me to um, directing plays for the theater that uh, one of them was going to go on a national tour starring Keith David and Jasmine Guy. Um, Keith David is the man. I love Keith David. <laughs> I was yeah. 26 years old. And Keith David, I directed Keith David, and it was a it was an incredible experience. But anyway, from there, um, um, I was gonna I was going to fire our set designer, and I never fired anybody before. And I walked into um, the set designer's agent's office, and because um, this play with Keith David was going to go on a national tour that I had directed. And I was like, I wrote a, it's not you, it's me letter. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, and I gave it to the agent and that agent said, okay, great, great, great. So what are you doing right now? And I was like, you know, I'm about to direct this thing. I think, I'm, I think it might move to Los Angeles. I was chasing a girl out in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, and, uh, and then they're like, well, in the meantime, while, before you go to LA, can you audition for some stuff? And I was <laughs> like, sure. And I auditioned, and the first and only thing they sent me on was 30 Rock. Wow. And so I'm, you know, the, that tour, the play that I was going to direct, it didn't materialize. Um, we, the, our funding fell through. And so I did 30 Rock for, you know, seven years. And then while I was at 30 Rock, I was always looking for opportunities to continue being a storyteller rather than just uh, uh, in many different ways, rather than just being an actor. And I would talk to the NBC executives and, and you know, so I guess what I'm saying is, is my journey is never about, I'm going to pursue this. My journey mm -hmm. has always been about how do I grow as an artist right. and as a storyteller. And then the opportunities presented themselves, um, because I've now been placed in a position where I'm open to receive them. That's interesting. I, I feel like we're like two different versions of the same approach because I've, I've always been, I am going to make this film. Uh-huh. And it might take seven years, but I'll make that joint. I'm making this and, film. <laughs> and then the next thing is like, I'm going to make this next film. Yeah. And, but, but along the way, kind of what you're talking about happens for me. Because mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, I, I, this is taking forever, so let me. Oh shit! Now I'm doing a commercial. Oh, okay, oh, all right. Like, yeah. let me build this company. Like, um, yeah. but it, it's a testament to like that that responsiveness to the opportunities, and also like not like not thumbing your nose at shit that you didn't plan. That's the you know what, I, and that's such an important lesson that especially artists need to learn, right. which is which is be adaptable, leave yourself open, understand that your ultimate goal is to be a storyteller. Right. And that might take many different forms. 
as long as the story, as long as you get to tell the story you want to tell, be right. open. Right. Yeah. And there's just principles and, 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 and also, mm-hmm. you know, be a person, be a person, <laughs> you go know, and have like, a life. Yeah. Be a person. <laughs> like, and also, you know, don't, don't be like, don't burn bridges, you yeah. know? Um, and just, uh, I might've burned a bridge or two. Well, you know what, you know, keep, keep your gasoline nearby because sometimes, you know, you do have to, you do have to set a flame, you know, something. There's some, yeah, yeah. So during that time, so from 06 to 13, um, you're on 30 Rock. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this was something I didn't know. Uh, The Judy's got a gun. ABC pilot. I did a pilot. How did that come? Yeah. I um well it came the 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 first season of 30 Rock. I was hired as a recurring character and not as a series regular. They told me that they were going to hire me as a series regular and then they hired me as a recurring character because a certain actor on our show asked for too much money. <laughs> and and um and so they didn't have any money in the budget to make me a series regular. So right. I was recurring and in the, in the in that time I kept, uh, and so I went back out and, uh, and auditioned mm. um, while I was recurring on, on 30 Rock. And I auditioned for a pilot um, and, I, and I booked it. And they had to write me out of the last three episodes of 30 Rock in order for me to do it. And then... Um, did they willingly, because I know that's a, a, often a big negotiation. Like, did they willingly do that because they felt they had kind of messed you over with with the false promise or 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 can you even talk about that that might be inside I, I, I don't know if I, I i don't know if i can talk too much about that but um but no i mean they they, they weren't happy about it and uh-huh. um uh they understood because i had asked them over and over and over again am i ever going to be a series regular um and um they couldn't give me an answer and so i went i have to go and follow this opportunity because you know, yeah, yeah, I ain't I talking need, about none, right? And <laughs> and there was no commitment on their part um, right. for me, and they weren't happy about it, but they understood, and um, uh, and so I went to shoot it, shoot the pilot, and then uh, while we were waiting for the pilot to get picked up, and probably in 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 hindsight, um, they might have known something that I didn't know. <laughs> Uh-huh. But while we were waiting, they called me and they said, we're, we're willing to give you a series regular contract. And I was like, great, let's like, you know, let's hear about what this pilot, what happens with this pilot. And then, of course, like a week later, the pilot was passed on. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, and so I went back to 30 Rock and I, I um, there was another major event that I can talk about. Um, it, uh, that happened a year later where um, there was still more difficult contract negotiations that were happening going into the third season because the show wasn't exactly a hit, but it wasn't a bomb. It was, it was clear that it was going to stay on the air for a little bit. Right. Um, so there were major contract negotiations that were happening with, with the top players and that squeezed money out of the, more money out of the budget. And, um, and so they asked me if, um, if I could take a 50% pay cut. 
For and those uh, listening, uh, basically, my my hat just blew off my head. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, after some wrangling and back and forth, I I realized that I could not live in New York City uh, for the amount of money that they were offering, and so. Excuse me. I and so I, um, I, I passed, and so I quit the show for a second time, hmm. and um, I was depressed. I didn't leave my bed for a week, and I was like, "Oh, is this the wrong decision? Did I make the the worst decision of my life?" Because you know, Thirty Rock was a true pleasure to work on. And, and it was, and the character of Tufer was advancing the stories that I'd like to tell in terms of educated black people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I was depressed for a week and I didn't get out of bed. And then finally I got a, a, a call um, that they wanted to reopen negotiations and they were willing to give me the things that I had asked for. And they closed on my deal within two hours hmm. and I went how the hell that happened what happened right. like what just changed all of a sudden I go to work um uh, a couple days later and Tina Fey comes over to me and she goes you'll never believe what happened because Tina always wanted me on the show it was it was more of a a, a, a contractual fight fight um you know with the the muckety mucks yeah rather than than the art the artistic team and um and i said what 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 happened and tina said that oprah winfrey was going to do an episode of 30 rock and she hadn't read the script yet um when, before she agreed to do it and while she was sitting on her plane she read the script her plane to come to new york to do it she read the script and got horribly offended because there was a character in blackface hmm. And Oprah Winfrey called Tina Fey and said, um, um, I understand that there is a character on your show um, who calls people out on their racism. And if you include the character of Tufer, my character, uh, in the scenes where the, where, where the character appears in blackface, calling it out, then I will do your show. Hmm. And NBC did a cost analysis and <laughs> they realized that they would lose more money losing Oprah than to just give me what I had asked for over the life of my contract. Hmm. And so in the two hours that they closed my deal, Oprah was sitting on the tarmac going, are you, uh, do, am I doing this or not? Right. That's why they closed my deal so quickly. Well, and I came back to 30 Rock and it never happened again. And, and Tina told me that I should say that on a talk show once. I should uh, tell that story on a talk show once. That's why I'm like, oh, I feel like I can say this. <laughs> is this the first time you've shared that? I think it's the first time I've ever well, shared well, this publicly. Break, breaking news. Well, <laughs> I, take, I take two things away from that. One, mm -hmm. uh, one's a statement, one's a question. The statement is, it sounds like Oprah flies private. 
You think? You think? <laughs> Waiting on the tarmac. And then two, uh, have you guys had, had dinner and, and had a, you know, have you thanked her for this? I bet you Oprah wouldn't know who the hell I was if I passed her on this dream. <laughs> it's Man. so funny because I was in the same room with Oprah once at a, like an Emmys or something. And I and and I, I think I was dating Jill at the time, and and uh, my current wife, my wife at the time, but uh, that was my, my current wife, <laughs> um, but my girlfriend at the time. Um, uh, currently, my wife, my girlfriend at the time. That's what I. Mean. Um, and Jill was like, "Go and say something. Go and say something. Go and say something." I'm like, "I I I can't. I can't." Right. <laughs> Man. So so during this time. Um, and first off, kudos for standing your ground. Uh, and, um, it was just practicality. I, I, I just couldn't live off of the amount of money, that amount of money. Yeah. But look, I mean, yo, a lot of people, a lot of people (laughs) doing a lot of things they can't live off. That's true. I look at a lot of choices like, did that change your life? Or, or did it, did it, you know, make third quarter easier? (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> um, but so were you itching to get back in the director's chair during this, uh, period of, of, of network television, which also included newsroom at about a boy, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously you still continue to, 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 to act on TV, but like, mm-hmm. were, was this like the time where you were like, man, I wish I was directing? Well, while I was on 30 Rock, I made friends with many people at NBC and um, they, many of them started champion, championing me and I'd say to them, I also direct um, and that's what I got my degree in. And, um, and so uh, when I got on About a Boy after 30 Rock, I was a recurring character on About a Boy. Right. And, um, and they, uh, some executives at NBC had said to me, uh, well, let's see if you can get an episode to direct of About a Boy. And so we tried to get me to direct an episode of of About a Boy, but then the show got canceled. Mm. (laughs) And That's um, how it goes. Yeah. And then I started shadowing on uh, Superstore. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I eventually directed an episode of Superstore. Um, but but it was my conversations with NBC saying, um, uh, you know, I th- there's a I I'm I'm also a director, um, and I believe that I could really I believe that I have a unique point of view in terms of how how to direct and how to tell stories, especially being on Thirty Rock for seven years. I think that I have something to offer. In that and and you know trying to find ways for that to happen and I I I mean I you know I I then just got into the shadowing game I I I've shadowed between between 2000 and and 12 and today I've shadowed on 10 11 shows right and uh, you know you just kind of you kind of hit the grind and and let people know that you can do more than just act. So what was what was the project that you were kind of like, man, ah, I'm just going to do my own thing. Like what what brought uh, you? I mean, uh, I've made a short film um, a year for the past 10 or 11 years. 
Man, that's good. And uh, I always, because I always just need to make something. And um, so while I was on 30 Rock, I, I, I did a number of, I, I directed a number of short films. But when I got off of 30 Rock, it was important to me that I kind of establish my comedy voice. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, so much of my life, up the, uh, in my career up to that point in comedy was, um, you know, doing Tina's voice. Uh, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, living in, in that world, but, you know, it was different than my voice. Right. And so I created, I, and I finally, first of all, I, I wrote a movie um, that was a drama that I starred in and, and was the lead producer on. And it was a feature film and we raised the money and, and um, um, it played at festivals and got distribution and all that kind of stuff. And, and that was the first thing where I'm just like, fuck it, I'm going to do it myself because this is a story I want to tell. Right. And then... Um, Can I ask what then, that was about? What was the premise? It was a, it was a, it was a movie called My Name is David. It, the distributor changed the name to a much more interesting title. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, uh, the, the name of the movie was, was called My Name is David. The movie I shot was My Name is David. And, I, lo and, I love when they do that. I love right? when they do that. Um, and Thanks for helping me figure out this movie right. four years, well, four well, years when later. I, when I tell you what the name is, you'll, you'll, you'll see how helpful they were. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, it was a movie about um, uh, my character finding uh, an abandoned baby on a subway and deciding to raise the baby as my own. It was a project that came about because um, the, the guy who was going to direct it, um, uh, he and I were old NYU buddies and, um, and we wanted, we started having conversations about how we, what we pass on to the next generation. Right. And so that's what became, and so, you know, I devised the story, I co-wrote the script and, um, um, you know, and, and we made, my name is David and, and, um, and then it was changed. The name was changed to train baby. Ah, man. <laughs> so now, now I understand what it's about. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I remember on one of my films, I was like doing a little vanity Google search. Uh -huh. Um, like, you know, like, hey, what's, what's popping with Pete? And, uh, <laughs> I saw that they had changed the poster. To my film. Yep, they did. They changed like, the posters to mine too. And and but it was like a year later. It was like yeah, a year man. later, and it was like we because we had like like I had to. We would go through drafts, and you know, typically when you get the next draft after a notes conversation, notes are implemented. Yes, not shit is snuck in. Uh -huh. And 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 like I was like, yo, I gotta I gotta like look at this poster from like 19 angles to make sure I'm not overlooking something. And I remember it was a little it was a little detail. It was they had changed the watch on the character. Hmm. 
and and made it like not, not the watch that was in the photo that he wore in the film, huh. but they made it they made it more blingy. And I was like, really? Well, I was like, is what, this a black not, person uh, yeah. wearing that watch? Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. like, is this like a no limit? Is this like circa, you know, 2000 no limit records album cover? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and, it, it, but it, it, it got me so angry because like, I'm expecting now to look for, it was so, it was subtle. You know what I mean? But it was mm-hmm. like, you're, you're telling people something about this movie that's not true. That's not true. Um, well, I mean, you know, I guess the poster for us, it's, they changed the poster. It's a it's a photo of me that I never knew existed. <laughs> Holding a baby I've never held in my life. <laughs> um, and I was like, that's what y'all chose? That's right. what y'all chose? <laughs> so, so does so, that drive... So, yeah, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, just just to to, to to end it from from there the 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 story my voice in comedy um, became a web series that I created called Keith broke his leg, mm. and that's that was my journey after Thirty Rock in terms of getting my my work out there, and I have to do it myself. And Sorry. that was twenty fourteen. Yeah, something like that. 2014, 2015. Yeah. yeah. What's up, y'all? This is Romney Malco, and you are listening to Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is Pete Chapman's upcoming book about his journey as a director. What started in 1993 has been a marathon full of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school, to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book will be for any person eyeing a successful career in a creative art. How to Succeed as a Creative Professional is coming soon. Okay, I'm going to loop this back to what you said about Lynn Redgrave. Okay. Because you, you got a vital lesson of how you are a creator, as an actor from from your experience mm-hmm. with her. But then you go and do TV, which in some arenas may want you to kind of be a wood peg, you know, right. a, a square wood peg in a square wood hole, right? Be a, be, be a part of the machine. Be a part of the machine. So yeah. when you were making Keith Brooker's leg and the films per year for the last 10 years, was that your opportunity to return to this yeah. advice that Ling Redgrave had given you? Yes, I mean, that's the thing where, where I, um, I, I believe even in television directing, even when you are a part of the machine, that the only way to um, have, a, to thrive mm-hmm. um, um, is to figure out your way into that and your way into that. And, and for me, I always need a reconnection to who I am, mm-hmm. what stories I want to tell, how I want to tell them and why I want to tell them. And I, and I always need a little bit of a reboot. So that's why I always kind of do these projects on my own so that, that it helps me reconnect with, 
my inner voice and who I am as an artist and what I can offer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and that informs me in the work that I do as a professional in the television industry or the film industry. And, um, and I will tell you that I didn't start booking work until I realized that it's not about what they want you to do. It's about what you can do for them. Does that make sense? It's, oh. not, it's not looking to them to say, what can you do for me? It's looking to me and going, this is what I can offer. Right. Well, that, and that, I mean, that's a spot on, um, you know, this is a straight up uh, 100 podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's been the thing that I've been working on because, you know, you come into the industry and the people know you for the thing that you've done. The thing, yeah. well, they know you for the thing that they've acknowledged first. Exactly. So as far as it kind of goes, I've found that I'm just a, viewed as a guy who does episodic television um, because mm-hmm. all of the feature films in the production company exist in like this bubble that the tentacles of the industry were not in. And so now I've noticed like in transitioning to like pilot meetings and all those things, it's like, here's what I can do to yes. help you execute this vision that's very personal to you. Exactly. And it's just a little bit of a pivot in thinking, right? It's, it's, and that's it, all it is. It's just a small pivot in thinking. It's, it's, yeah. it's never, I, you know, as a director, I believe, I believe that directors are storytellers, right? Mm-hmm. And my little artsy view of directors, writers, actors are the writers are the ones that create the world. The directors are the ones that interpret the world and the actors are the vessels through which the world is told. And, and I believe that if I am just putting on one of the hats, that I really need to honor that particular hat. And so that hat is a director, is to, it is to tell that, is to tell the story that the writer has created, right? It's to interpret that story. And, and I think that it's just a small pivot in, and where I, in, in meetings um, about directing someone else's words, I say something like, well, this, what you did here really resonates with me because of this thing and this thing in my life and what I can do and what story I think you're trying to tell is X, Y, and Z. And that's why it's so impersonal to me and why, you know, so it's bridging the two things and it's not about what can I do? Uh, uh, You know, I need to, I need to uh, just, just turn the camera on so that your words can be heard. It's how can I bridge us and make it so right. that so that the 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 full story is told and it's ultimately the writer's story right but what's great about that is that you're also making yourself inextricable from the success of the project because <laughs> i i understand what you're doing exactly i have a personal journey that makes me a bigger value add than the right. director who doesn't Right. And in partnership, this thing you've been working on for so long gets elevated. 
Exactly. You and, know? you know, and, and especially in television, the writer is king, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so then that begs the question, then why the hell is the director there? And I, I believe that the director is there to help tell the story that, that the writer has created. Um, in, in its purest emotional, most emotional way possible, right? Mm-hmm. It's to make, it's, 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 it's becomes a living, breathing thing. The, um, you know, I've, being both in the Writers Guild and in the Directors Guild and being on the Committee of Black Writers and the, you know, the steering committee of the, of the Black Directors, um, I see that the committee, that the, the writers spend so much time agonizing over things mm-hmm. because it's about figuring out what story they want to tell. Mm-hmm. And directors spend a lot of time just just executing, right? Right, because they need to te- they need to um, they need to breathe life into the into that story. Mm-hmm. Um, these my, my ears are getting big, so my my <laughs> earphones are falling off. <laughs> no, that's spot on. You know, I I have uh, I think also the fact that you are a storyteller and have your hands in so many different parts of the assembly line of creativity, if we can mm-hmm. call it that, um, that it allows you to bring something extra um, to the individual hats you might wear. Because people mm-hmm. talk a lot about, oh, like it's just a television. It's just like uh, you're, you're creative traffic cop. And I'm like, yo, I've, I've watched shows that I've directed like whatever this sound, I, I don't mean to sound like this, but like, like I've watched my episode and then I've watched like one later and be like that one. And, and even your family would be like, that wasn't that good. Right. So it, 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 there's something that is happening that you are doing when you sit in that chair. Now, That's it'll, very true. It'll be finished. It'll air. You know what sure. I'm saying? But like, there's a difference between like what, what you're talking about is the difference between somebody saying like, man, that was good or just kind of not identifying why it was off a little bit. Yeah. And that's the thing where, you know, because we are, uh, television is such a machine and I think that there's beauty in the machine, frankly, I Mm. think. um, But because television is such a machine, it's very important, especially as a director to find the humanity in it. And, and, and because that's ultimately what the writers are looking for, right? The, right. the writers are, are, are searching for the thing that's human, the story that's human and that connects. And it's the director's job to, 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 to honor that and to make it human. Right. And, and, and you know, this is the conversation that I have with so many people, where uh, and, and executives um, in television, where where I I feel like we are, I feel like we're all trying to um, in comedies, we're trying to find the pathos, and in dramas, we're trying to find the levity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's how we get to human. Right. And a director 
absolutely is the person that should be that instrument in that process. Right. Um, here's so, a, yeah. Here's a question, and I, I, I don't learn my lesson. I, I keep asking these, like, uh, what's the best questions to see if somebody will ever answer them. Um, but, <laughs> but, like, what's the best note you were ever given as an actor and uh, and what's the best direction you've given an actor? Um, and I'll give you an example. I was listening to uh, Don Cheadle talk about Boogie Nights mm. um, <laughs> and that moment where he's got that like crazy like costume on and he's just sitting there uh, and in the chair. And uh, he said after like the first take, Paul Thomas Anderson was like, uh, nah, man, that's not it. Like I would like just like. Just don't think about anything. I just want you to be. Don't think about anything. And then, right? And then, so the next take, he's like, just sitting there, like, what the fuck does that mean? And then, <laughs> and then, and then he was like, Paul Thomas Anderson was like, perfect. And he was like, you look like a guy thinking about nothing because, like, right? Because <laughs> you're wondering what was that direction. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you Jedi. Um, oh man, that's a good. That's a good story. <laughs> so you know, is there what would what would that be for you? What was the best? I can't think at the moment what the best note I've ever received as an actor was. So let me get back to that. But um, the one, an early note that I gave to another actor um, that has stuck with me. Um, it was what it was during um, when I was directing Keith David and Jasmine Guy in, in, in this play. And Jasmine was having a very difficult time um, memorizing up. It, it's a two hand. It was a two character play, so there was just a lot of text that both of them had to memorize. And Jas Jasmine was having a particularly hard time memorizing one particular paragraph mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a speech she had to give, and. And every time we got to in rehearsal, like, you know, she'd fumble and, and it'd be really rough. And, and, and um, there was a lot of, um, there was, uh, she had to really fight for it. And then finally, she was getting so frustrated. She came to me and she said, Keith, there's this line in this monologue that trips me up, this sentence that trips me up. Can I just cut it? If I cut it, I'll know this monologue like that. It's, it's that one line trips me up. And I said, no. <laughs> no, what I said to her was, what I said to her was, Jasmine, I want you to go away tonight and figure out why the playwright put that line, that one sentence into the play and come back to me and explain why that one sentence is there. And if, you, and if you can't figure out why, then we'll cut it. But I have a feeling that that sentence is in there for a reason. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, fine, 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 fine. She went away and she came back and she said, um, oh my God, I know this whole thing now. It's like, well, what happened? And she said, well, first of all, there was a, 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 a I learned the line wrong. So I learned, I learned this particular sentence where it's like a you instead of a, um, a me. 
or whatever it was, like a little word, a little article. Right. And, um, and she goes, and it's interesting because that one sentence now tells me about the entire character that I had been overlooking. And I did nothing but just say, you can cut it. <laughs> uh, you right. can cut it if you can tell me wh- if you tell me why. Right. But it was a, a lesson to me, and it was a lesson to me as an actor, and a lesson to me as a director, and a lesson to me as a writer, that everything is there for a reason, and and you can't just like willy nilly go past it. Right. You have to explore it, and you have to figure out why it's there. Right. I have come across some lines that don't seem to have been there for a reason on a show or two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, me too. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know what, though? But it's one of those things where um, and we're a good director will stop and go, why is this line here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a good director should be able to offer, offer an alternative, a way to... Right. to you can't just say... Um, fix it. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> like, right. Um, you have to be able to offer a path forward, but right. you've got to know why it's there. And if it was there because they had a fucking deadline and they had their, you know, their showrunner breathing down their neck and it's just right. got dashed off, then you can go, yeah, let's cut it. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know? right. But we got to We got to identify gotta know why. Got to be why. honest. So what what's uh where are you now, man? What are you working on? Like what's the um what uh prolific hat are you wearing most as we as we manage the pandemic and quarantine? Um oddly enough, I'm I'm wearing all three hats currently <laughs> <laughs> in the pandemic. Um I have three projects that I've been that I'm that I'm currently kind of submerged in. I it is. It takes up all of my days during the week. Um, um, the the on the acting front, uh, my wife and I got got cast in a show um, that um, will require us. It's a network show. It will require us to kind of shoot in our home during the pandemic, and um, that's kind of the joke. That's kind of the characters. So right. that'll last us until uh, October. On the directing front, um, I'm prepping a movie that uh, my my first feature um, that I also wrote. Um, uh, it's a movie called Buffalo with a team at Vanishing Angle, which uh, Vanishing Angle is a production company. They've had, I think, four or five movies in a row at Sundance every year. They are. Um, um, the most amazing indie filmmaker group of indie filmmakers and, and lovely people to work with. Um, it's a feature film that we are putting a cast together for uh, right now that that um, talks about the history of the Buffalo Soldiers and 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 their clash with the Native Americans during the Indian Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a modern story, but it harkens back to that, um, and it's a right. thriller. Right, um, that's great. Yeah, and and um, directing it, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing these pre meetings and, and and putting all the people together and having these these meet- prep meetings for it is it's just um, it's feeding my soul really mm-hmm. as a director. Um, it's engaging my my head, whereas right. acting engages my heart. 
And then as a writer, I'm writing a movie. Uh, I got hired to write a film for HBO Films um, that uh, I can't tell the details of. Uh, but um, um, it, 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 again, is about black history, which is obviously something really important to me. And, um, and it's, it's about prison reform. And uh, and which I think is a conversation that we desperately need in this country. And I was uh, I, I uh, early uh, late last year, I, I um, went into the room at HBO Films and, and I pitched this story and they bought it in the room. And um, and, uh, you know, I've been hard at work hammering away on that screenplay um, yeah. that I would only write. I would not direct. So got it. All right. Well, here we—you've been busy, brother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> here's the here's the lightning round, so you can get back to work. Let's uh, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> now, this is something I'll give you. Um, you can whether you have one or three max for each of these questions. Uh, okay. This first question: uh, What would you recommend our audience binge for good acting? And then for good writing. Um, I think that if no one has ever, for writing, if no one has ever seen um, Mad Men, um, it's one of the best written shows ever. Um, Sopranos is also, but I, I, I think Mad Men is more Chekhovian and I like Chekhov. Okay. okay. <laughs> so Mad Men, I would say. And then for acting... Well, Jill and I just, my wife and I just um, binged The Great on Hulu. Um, and I just think the, the performances in that show is ju are just- Hel Helen Mirren, Catherine the Great? No, 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 no. It's no? a comedy. Um, oh, wow. Totally uh, off. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, it is, it's a comedy about Catherine the Great. Um, okay. And um, in Russia, and it's got Elle Fanning and Nico Nicholas Holt in it. Okay. Um, and it starts off really crude and weird and frankly dumb, but um, just over the episodes, it builds into such beautiful performances. By the last episode, mm. it was there. Uh, everybody is just breathtaking in it. Mm. You know, I should, and considering your multi-hyphenate. Uh, lifestyle here uh what should people binge for directing um i think well i think breaking bad is one of the best directing best directed shows i've ever seen no the sopranos hmm. okay it's a, it's a um, study in directing dope i i i co-sign all of these answers yeah. um <laughs> not that y'all need that but you know just gotta <laughs> put it out there um, uh, can i say a feature film that people yeah. should watch yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the most one of if not the only perfect film and the most perf one of the most perfect films ever is The Silence of the Lambs. That mm. is a master class in directing. Jonathan Demi. Yep. Rest in peace. Yep. Um what three traits do you think someone needs to make it in this industry? Stick-to-itiveness. So fortitude is, I guess, the, the better word for that. Um, Open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. uh, passion. 
All right. Fortitude, open-mindedness, passion. And uh, the listeners should also know you should be able to be a chef uh, (laughs) because Keith... Keith Powell can cook some food, y'all. I love um, cooking. I love cooking. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, man. I, I really appreciate it. Um, always good to rap with you. Brother, it is such a pleasure. It's such an honor. I think um, um, it's you. I, I, I admire you as an artist. And I'm so glad that um, the world is now uh, really, you know, uh, oh, we we didn't say this when it was r- recorded, but right. um, I think the world is now in the get me Pete Chapman um, place, <laughs> and I and I appreciate that, uh, and I, I'm glad I'm glad for that. I, I appreciate that too, man. And yeah. <laughs> but also, <laughs> I know we we talked about some stuff before, but we got to figure out some collabos, man. I love um, it. And. I love it. You know, I don't, is that, are you, the last short film that you shared with me, is, are you sharing that? Is there anything you want me to direct people toward or that we can direct people toward so they can um, see more of, uh, of your work? I directed a short film called Sophie's Quinceanera. If you go to my, my Vimeo page, if you, you know, um, there's a bunch of work on there that I really love. Um, one, a deeply personal one is a, is a short film called Sophie's Quinceanera. Um, uh, that played a lot of really lovely, wonderful festivals and it just ended. And I like, I, I want people to see that. It's dark as fuck, mm-hmm. violent, and uh, it's funny sometimes. Hmm. But um, it was, it's a microcosm of, of where I was emotionally. Hmm. And, um, and I, I'm very proud of it. All right. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Yeah. Appreciate right, it. All right. All right. Take care. What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. That was Keith Powell. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, We don't have any mail in the mailbag. I don't know why folks uh, are not taking advantage of that because we'll answer within reason any question that you have. But uh, to get ahead of that, next week, I'm going to bring you guys a special episode, um, which will be me providing my 10 commandments for episodic television directing. So you're going to walk away from episode 10 with 10 undeniable things that you can put into practice as you continue your journey as an episodic director or step into your journey as an episodic director. And overwhelmingly, it'll be things that can apply to whatever you're doing, Um, because directing to some extent is directing. It's more of the uh, psychological things that you have to be prepared for in the different uh, spaces from film to TV to branded to commercials to music videos or whatever it might be. Um, so that'll be me. I, I'll probably bring a couple special guests on with me. Stay tuned for that. You'll find out when you tune in next week. And as always, thank you to my producer, Tristan Nash, my assistant producer, Jada George, and my announcer here, Kelly McCreary. And until we catch you the next time, stay safe, stay blessed, and spread love. <laughs>